0: We'll be in Judges chapter three, verse seven through thirty-one, and that's page um, two hundred two in the Bibles around the room. And I will read the scripture, and then when I'm done, I'll say, "This is the reading of God's word," and you will respond by saying, "Thanks be to God." And we respond that way because we're truly thankful that we get to hear God speak today. Judges chapter three, verse seven, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim 8 years. But when the Lord when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the king the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim. so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud "'Made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, "'and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, "'and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. "'Now Eglon was a very fat man, "'and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, "'he sent away the people who carried the tribute. "'But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgad and said, "'I have a secret message for you, O king.' "'And he commanded silence, "'and all his attendants went out from his presence.' And Ehud came to him, as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, "I have a message from God for you." And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat cover—sorry—and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. <laughs> sorry. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the door of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, "'Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand.' So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over.' And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. This is the reading of God's word. You, God. Let's pray, church. God, thank you for being the perfect father. You are faithful even when we turn away from you, time after time after time. You are merciful even when we act like your grace isn't enough. You are loving even when we sin against you with hatred in our hearts. God, you are powerful. You are the Lord and ruler over all things, and we praise you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, our greatest deliverer. Thank you for your patience. God, you chase after us with your arms open, ready to welcome us back to the fold. Help us, Father, to turn to you in our time of need. Help us to lean on your eternal wisdom and trust in your righteous way. Open our hearts and minds to receive your word today. Bless Pastor Kyle as he moves through your holy scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: That's quite the intro, huh? Welcome to church, everybody. Well, good morning. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors, and it's my privilege to be able to preach to you from the Book of Judges today, which, if you didn't have one open, as you heard, this story is very entertaining, so grab one and open it up to Judges chapter three on page 202 on the Bibles we set around the room. And if you're a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. Uh, It's really an honor to have you with us. And we're a church that loves to go through books of the Bible. And that's what we're doing right now through this book of Judges. And we find ourselves on a perfect story for Father's Day, don't we? Um, It's a fun story. Uh, But it's also, this entire book of Judges is fun, but it's also tragic at the same time. The book of uh, Judges is uh, in the literary genre of a tragedy. It shows how bad things get when we as humans do what's right in our own eyes. When we try to live like we're the king of our lives instead of God. And that's actually what the Bible defines as sin. A lot of us have this idea in our mind that sin, we, we say, well, certain, these horrible things are sins and as long as I'm avo- I avoid those, I'm okay. But the Bible goes much further. The Bible says that sin is whenever you live according to what you think is right rather than to what God thinks is right. That's sin. And whenever we start to live as humans, according to what uh, is right in our own eyes, whenever we, in a sense, try to follow our heart, it always leads to a downward spiral that ultimately leads to brokenness, death, and destruction. And so that's what this is about, and that's why all of our art, as you can see over here, our artists have done a great job for the series, that when we do what's evil in the eyes of the Lord, when we do what's right in the eyes of ourselves, it always leads to a downward spiral. And so for this book of Judges, we're calling the series, Only God Can Judge Me. And the reason for that is it's, that phrase has a lot of meanings, few meanings. The first meaning is this, as we say the phrase in our culture, Only God Can Judge Me, when we're trying to tell other people to stop judging us, don't we? We say, what are you doing passing judgment on me? Only God can judge me. I can live however I want. And that's what the book of Judges is about. And it shows us how bad things get when you actually live according to that. But it's also a reminder to us that this, truly only God can judge us. Amen, church? Truly he will. And that shouldn't cause us to want to sin more. It should cause us to tremble and call out for a savior. And so that's why we're titling this Only God Can Judge Me. Now, when you read the word judge in this book, it's not judge like we think about in a courtroom wearing a robe. The word judge in this book is a warrior leader, a deliverer. So when you read the word judge, don't think Judge Judy, rather think Braveheart. That's what's going on. It's like a chieftain a warrior leader who's come to save his people. And today we have three really fun stories and they're all stories of deliverance. And in verse nine, it says that God raised up a deliverer. And this is a unique word in the book of Judges and it means a savior. God raised up a deliverer and a savior. The word is literally Moses. God raised up another Moses. And what it shows us is that we need a savior. And I think that this can be very clearly seen in our culture and our, in the recent um, phenomenon of our enthusiasm of superhero movies. Um, over the last decade or so, there's been a bunch of superhero movies that have come out, and they've just exploded. Like, and they're awesome, right? Like Iron Man and all the Marvel comics and DC. Like, it is awesome. And as I was doing a little bit of reading on that this week, I learned that superheroes really became popular in World War II and then again in the civil rights movement. And that's because in those two times of history, we knew that we needed salvation beyond ourselves. And then I could also argue for the same today, that with so much um, violence and so much sin and awfulness that is in the world, we know our need for a savior. And it feels good to be able to escape into fantasy land where you can meditate on this idea of these great heroes coming to save. But we're not just fascinated with a savior that is like us, we're also fascinated with the idea that we need a savior who's not like us, who is strange. Because we know, I think, intrinsically in our human hearts that we cannot save ourselves. And that's the big idea for this section. The big idea is this, salvation for sinners comes through a strange savior. Salvation for sinners comes through a strange savior. And those are actually my points. Point one, salvation for sinners. Point two comes through. And point three, a strange savior. So let's look at the first one, salvation for sinners. If you can see in verse seven, how does this story start? Does it start on a happy note? No, it doesn't. Welcome to church. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So that's how the story starts. God's people, whom he saved, whom he loved, whom he's blessed, did what was evil in his sight. They did what was evil in his sight. And we suffer from the same thing, don't we? Every week, we, we end up doing what is evil in his sight. And what is evil in his sight? It says that they forgot the Lord their God. What is evil in God's sight? Forgetting him. Forgetting him. And that forgetting him led them to serve Baals and Ashtaroth, which were two idols, man-made things of wood and stone, the gods of love and fertility and war. They abandoned the living God for wooden and stone dead objects. But it starts with forgetting the Lord. What What is it to forget the Lord? Does it mean they literally could not remember him? I don't think so. I think that this is, a, uh, this is a figure of speech. If you can remember, maybe you're one of the guys in high school who you had a bad breakup with a girlfriend that you really liked and you're really torn up about it. She dumped you and then you were all sad. And then your friends came to you and said, forget her, let's go out. What were they saying? They weren't saying literally forget that she exists. They were saying start acting as if she has no power in your life. And that's exactly what's going on here. When Israel forgot God, it's not that they forgot his existence, it's that they started acting as if he had no power in their life. I was talking with a, a member of our church, Taylor Sexton, this, this last week, and he's like, it's like when people say, you're dead to me. They, when you say that to somebody, which you probably should never say that to somebody, when you say that, you're not literally thinking, oh, you're literally dead. You're saying, I'm gonna start acting as if you have no power. life in my life. I'm gonna have, you have no influence, you have no power in my life. And that's what had happened. The people that God had saved abandoned him. They forgot him. And they turned to man-made things. It's really pretty awful, isn't it? Forsaking, forgetting God always leads to forsaking God. It always leads to forsaking God. And that's how the story begins. And it begins there because that's what we need to hear. Because we have a tendency to do the same thing with God, don't we? We know that he exists, but we tend to act as if he doesn't have any power or influence in our life. And so what does God do? Well, in verse 8, it shows us. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishitham, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan-Rithaim. I can't read these words, my bad. All right, I need some more degrees to be able to read some of these names of the Bible. 8 years. So what happened is God sold them into the hand of this guy and his name Cushan-Rithaim means double evil from double rivers. And so there's a little bit of a play on words. God got upset and so he made them slaves of Mr. Double Evil. Okay? And then eventually God sends them a savior and they have peace for 40 years. But then look at what happens in verse 12. And the people again did what was evil on the side of the Lord. And so what did God do then? And the Lord God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil on the side of the Lord. So again, once they do evil again to God and start living according to what's right in their eyes, God sells them again over to the hands of another king, King Eglon. And what it just goes to show us is this, is that God loves us enough to humble us. Psalm 16 says that God saves the humble. Well, how is he going to save the humble if we're proud? He must humble us. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so what it shows us is this, is that God loves us enough to knock us down so that he could pick us up. And we need to wrestle with that. I like what commentator Del Ralph Davis says. He says, this is not good news, nor is it bad news. It's good bad news. It's bad because it's never fun to be humbled by God. But it's good because it means he hasn't given up on you. It's like a spanking. When a father gives a child a spanking, or a mother gives a child a spanking, there's no kid in the world who's like, this is good news, while they're getting it. But later on in life, they can look back and say, I'm glad my parents disciplined me so that I would walk in the way that I should go. It's good, bad news. And you see, what happens here is God hands them over to slavery. God has hardwired us to need him. And so whenever we try to live like we don't need him, he'll hand us over to our sins so that we can see that they actually break us. They don't help us. It's like, I use the example sometimes around here. It's like if you have a diesel truck, it runs on diesel gasoline. If you say, I don't wanna put diesel gasoline in my car, I wanna put regular gasoline. Go ahead, but it's gonna break your car. (laughs) It will break your truck. And that's what sin is. Sin is when we say to God, I don't wanna live your way, I wanna live my way. And God says, okay, go ahead. And you'll see how it works for you. It'll break you. Living Your way instead of his way will break you. Following your heart instead of his heart will break you. And God loves you enough to sometimes allow you to go down that path so that you can see how much you actually need him. Forgetting God always leads to forsaking him. And that's what we see here. So the essence of all sin is to forget him. And what is interesting to me in this passage is if you read verse 11, it says, so the land had rest for 40 years. That's a long time. 40 years is a long time. And then in verse 12, it says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what we see here is a pattern that's going to be throughout the entire book of Judges that forgetting comes, forgetting God always comes after a time of prosperity and peace because that's when we're most prone to forget him isn't it? Um, Occasionally we'll forget God when something miraculous happens. Like you find out that your neighbor is sick and you go over and you pray for your neighbor and they get healed and all of a sudden you start to take the credit and you're like, I'm a pretty good prayer. (laughs) I can pray pretty dang good. Occasionally we'll forget God when something terrible happens, like the death of a loved one. We'll start to blame him. But we're most prone to forget God in times of peace and prosperity. We're most prone to forget God when things are going good, when you have food on the table and changes of clothes in your closet and a roof over your head. We're most prone to forget God when you're not in the midst of chaos, when you're in the midst of peace. That's when you're most prone to forget God. And guess what, church family? That is the exact season that we find ourselves in in Sparks, Nevada. There's plenty of jobs. We all have food and clothing. Like, I was looking at my closet. I have multiple changes of clothes. I've eaten, you know, for the last week, I've eaten three times a day. And by the world standards, if you have two changes of clothes and you eat more than two times a day, you are rich. And yet we think we get grumpy when we miss a meal. <laughs> These are not bad things but they should show us that we are very prone to forget God in this season of life. And so it's a warning to us. And I think case in point is 9-11. 9-11, it's well-documented by both Christian sociologists and secular sociologists that the week after 9-11, churches were packed across the country because in the midst of a tragedy, you start to look towards God. But a, a few months later, guess what happened? Attendance dropped back to normal. And so it's a warning for us. In the middle of this time of peace, are we gonna forget our good God? Have you forgotten him? How have you been living in your life as if God doesn't exist or as if he's not powerful or as if he's not in control or as if he's not the true provider of your needs? How have you been looking to other things, whether it be sex, power, fame, money, career, to make you happy instead of turning to him. It's when we forget God that we turn to replacement gods. And it just shows one of the encouragements, I think for us throughout the book is over and over and over again, the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And it gives us some encouragement because I read it and I say, well, I'm not the only one. (laughs) But it also exposes our great need for a savior. Sinners need a savior, don't we? Well, Salvation for sinners comes through a strange savior. So what does it mean to come through? This passage, these these three stories, the stories of Othniel, the story of Ehud, and the story of Shamgar, show us the different ways in which God brings his salvation to us and makes it manifest. So if you look at verse 9, we'll start with the story of Othniel. In verse nine, it says this, but the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now let's pause there. What did the people do? What did they do? They just cried out. That's it. They just cried out. No rituals, no like ceremonies, no magic words. They just cried out. That's all it takes to get God to save you is just to cry out. This is salvation by faith alone. It doesn't, you don't have to get your act together. You don't, have to, you, you don't have to clean yourself up. You just have to cry out in faith to the Savior. That's all you have to do. You just have to cry out to him. And so God raised up this dude. His name was Othniel. And in verse 10, it says the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave cushan Rithaim, king double evil from double rivers into his hand. And the Lord prevailed against king double evil. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz died. And so what this basically says is God heard their cry and then he gave them a savior, a deliverer, this guy named Othniel. And Othniel was the younger brother of the great warrior Caleb. And Othniel came and it said, basically, he opened up a can of whoop-ass on him. I don't know if I can say that in church, but that's what he did. And it said that the spirit of the Lord was especially on him. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. And what I want you to recognize in this section is how does salvation come through? In this section, God's salvation comes through in an obvious way, in an obvious way. God's salvation comes through in a way that it was apparent to everybody that the Lord was with this man. It was apparent to everybody. And that's one of the ways that God's salvation comes, in an obvious presence. The second way that salvation comes is in his invisible presence. And here we enter into the next story, the story of Ehud. And we're going to see God's invisible hand through the story. But it's a really, really funny story. And just so you know, it's okay to laugh at the funny stories in the Bible. When we all read that and Casey was laughing, everybody was like so serious. Like, can you laugh at the Bible? Yes, you can laugh at the Bible. Okay? So let's read this story, the story of Ehud. And we're going to see God's invisible hand. Verse 13. King Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites... And went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of palms. That's Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Do you see the pattern again? They just cried out. His name was Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Where's all my lefties at? Come on, where's my left-handed people at? All right, only one in this service. Okay. Two, we got two, all right. Some of the other lefties are scared. At the end of this, you won't be scared. The people of Israel sent a tribute to him, to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So what's going on here is uh, there's this, this king named Eglon, and they're enslaving the people of Israel, and so this means that Israel is weak and they're wary and they're doing all this work. They're working the fields and then they have to take their produce and they have to present it to the king. So try to imagine that scene. And so Ehud, this lefty, this left-handed assassin, he's a pretty awesome dude, he, he makes a sword and it's 18 inches long and he straps it to the inside of his thigh and, and he has a plan that he's going to go and take down the king. And so as you're reading this, if you put yourself into the sandals of an Israelite slave, you should be reading this with excitement in your heart, saying, finally, somebody will stand up to this oppressive king. And look at what he does in verse 16 or verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That's, pause there. Fat is something that changes in different cultures, isn't it? Now, I was talking with Sean Moss last week, and he said, if you go down in the timeless book of the Bible as a very fat man, you are a very fat man. <laughs> and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the, the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. So Ehud presents the tribute of produce. And then he's walking away. He gets to the place of Gilgal and he turns around the place of Gilgal is where God made a covenant with his people. So perhaps he got reminded of the covenant that God had made with him. And he turns back to the king and he says, king, I got a message for you. And the king said, silence. And it says here in verse uh, uh, 19, it says, and all his attendants went out from his presence so everybody left the room and he had came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and he had said again, I have a message from God for you. And the king arose from his seat and he had reached his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly and the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for it did not pull out the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. So how fat was he? 18 inches long and the fat and you know, swallowed up the blade, and then poop came out. The Bible says this. <laughs> then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So he goes for his escape. In verse twenty-four, when he had gone, the servants came and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool the chamber. Why did they think that? Because they could smell the poop. <laughs> They could smell the poop and they're like, well, surely he's taking care of business. In verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. So they waited for embarrassed. They're like, well, we know how guys like to take their time in the restroom. So we'll just let them have their time. But after a while, maybe it was 45 minutes or an hour maybe, they said, we got to open up this door. They opened up and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Meanwhile, verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was their leader. And look at what he said to them. Follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So he went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And these Israelite slaves killed about 10,000 Moabite warriors who were all strong, able-bodied men not, and not a man of them escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. So think about that being an Israelite slave. This story would have spread like wildfire. Wildfire because it's really funny, but it's also this awesome thing about these slaves finally standing up to this oppressive king and then God granting these slaves a great victory and salvation. And so what do we see here is we see God's invisible presence. At first reading, you would say, it is Ehud who handed the enemies over to their hand. But who does Ehud give glory to? God. And think about why. God's invisible hand was there. Think about the things that need, all the events that needed to happen in order for this victory to happen. First of all, Ehud had to not get searched on his inner thigh. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The king had to call for silence and have the attendants leave. That's also interesting. And then God had ordained that dung would come out to provide enough time for Ehud to escape to go gather the rest of the army. So what we see here. Is that when God saves? Sometimes it's like Othniel, He gives us His obvious presence, but other times it's like Ehud, and He guides us through His invisible presence. And sometimes you can't recognize it till you've been through it. And there's been many of us in this room who are sitting back, and you can look back at things in your life, and you could say, "Now I know why I went through that, and I can see how God was protecting me or saving me, but you couldn't realize it then." That's good. Now we get to sovereign presence and the story of Shamgar, verse thirty-one. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Here's an interesting story. One line, and it's over. Shamgar. Now, the thing about Shamgar, the deliverer, is this. He neither is Israelite, nor does he worship Yahweh, the Lord of the Bible. He worships Anath, which was a false god. And what it shows us here is that God uses this mysterious man from another race who worships another God to save his own people. It shows us God's sovereign rule and sovereign presence. All kingdoms, all people bow to the king of kings, God himself. And sometimes God will provide salvation through other nations. Sometimes God will provide protection through other people, though they may not belong to him. And that's what he does here with the story of Shamgar. And he killed 600 Philistines with an ox good, which is a piece of farm equipment. And the reason why he had to do it with a piece of farm equipment is because the oppression was so bad in the land that they took away their weapons. So if you're from California, you know what that's like. And they took away their weapons. And so this guy rises up from another nation and he saves God's people, though he does not belong to God's people. And that's also a beautiful thing. That we serve the God of all nations. We serve the king of all kings. And at the end of the day, all kingdoms serve God's great purpose. And so as we read these stories, we're supposed to say, why are they here in the Bible? Many commentators have said that this piece of scripture doesn't even belong there because they can't make sense in their mind why it would be there. But I think it's here for one reason, that it would say this here's how you don't forget God, you look at how he works. So how do we not forget God like they did in verse seven? Well, you have to be able to see how he works. He works in obvious ways, in visible ways, and in sovereign ways. And if you miss those ways in which he works, you will forget God. And so this passage is given to God's people so that we would take the time to quiet our minds and quiet our hearts to actually listen. This last week on Thursday, I was... uh, reading the bible in the early morning it was really quiet and I was hearing the birds singing and it was beautiful and I realized it's been a long time since I've recognized the birds singing and they sing every morning and the reason why I haven't been able to recognize them is because my heart and my head have been too busy and those things clutter up our minds to be able to see and hear the work of the lord so that's why we need to take time to do it. That's what church is about. It's slowing down to take time to remember how God has worked. He works, in, he works in obvious ways, invisible ways, and sovereign ways. That's why we need to read our Bibles. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. <laughs> that means that life can be falling apart all around you, but if you're in the Word and you're re- regularly reflecting on how God is at work, your life won't fall apart you will stay rooted in him. And so that's how he works. So now salvation for sinners comes through a strange savior. So let's look at these strange saviors. Each one of these stories, if you were a Hebrew, you would recognize that there's something strange about them. And in order to do this, we need to know that Hebrew storytelling is very interesting because it uses repetition and it uses name emphasis to make certain points. So with each one of these saviors, we see an interesting thing. With Othniel, we see that he's a foreign savior. With Ehud, we see that he's a funny savior. And with Shamgar, we see that he's a mysterious savior. So let's look at it first, Othniel. Othniel shows us that God provides salvation for sinners with a foreign savior. The reason for this is Othniel's name, uh, is called a deliverer, which literally means Moses, and his name means lion, his name means line, and guess what tribe he represents. There's 12 tribes of, the tribe of, of Israel. He represents Judah. But here's the interesting thing about him. He's not an Israelite. He's a man of another race. He has a man of another skin color, another native language. He's a Kenazite. And God says in Genesis 15 that the Kenazites were living in the land of Canaan, they, they were actually he, he was somebody who was, would have been an enemy, but he decided to worship God instead. And so what it shows us is we have this foreigner providing salvation. And it's not the way that the Hebrews would have written the script. The Hebrews would have never written the script for a foreigner, a man of another race, to provide the first salvation. But yet this foreigner is called the Lion of Judah. Then we have the funny salvation, don't we? With Ehud. Now, this story is intentionally written to be funny for a handful of reasons. First of all, it says that Ehud is left-handed. Now, uh, a lot of commentators say that this is because his right hand was deformed. I don't think that that's the case because in Judges chapter 20, you read about 700 uh, warriors who were left-handed from the tribe of Benjamin. And it says that they, could, they were so good at slinging a, sling, a stone from a sling that they wouldn't even miss a rabbit. And so, what it likely means is that Ehud was bad. Like this dude was like a Navy SEAL, ambidextrous warrior. He's a left-handed assassin. It's like, he's saying, this is the Southpaw dude. He comes in, he can fight, he can fight regular and he can fight Southpaw. He's the left-handed assassin. Now here's the funny thing. He's from the tribe of Benjamin and guess what Benjamin means? Right-handed. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the left-handed assassin from the right-handed tribe. And the whole story is written to make you laugh. So we have the left-handed assassin who's just this tough Navy SEAL sort of dude. And he goes up against this king who says is very fat, King Eglon. And guess what his name literally means? Round cow. <laughs> so we have the left-handed assassin going up against the round cow. Who do you think is gonna win? <laughs> and then they just go through. And then even as you're reading it, When you get to the point where uh, he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. If you were Hebrew, you would laugh because you know what that secret message is. It's attached to his inner thigh. He's gonna take out that dagger and he's gonna stick it into his stomach. That's the secret message, that God slays the kings of this world to deliver his people. So it's a funny salvation. No wonder this story is written for us because it must have spread like wildfire. And then the last one is a mysterious salvation. Nobody knows where Shamgar comes from. Uh, We just know that he worshipped this other god. Nobody knows what his name means, but we know that he was a mighty warrior who, in all these other instances, they got armies to defeat the enemies. But in this instance, Shamgar single-handedly defeated God's enemies. So we have this mysterious warrior single-handedly defeating God's enemies to save his people. So it shows us here that when God brings salvation, he does it through a strange savior. And doesn't it set the stage for the strange savior that's to come named Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus, you're supposed to read these and say, wow, this is what it's gonna look like. And when you read the story of Jesus, you should say, wow, Jesus is the greater and truer Othniel. Jesus is the greater and truer Ehud. And Jesus is the greater and truer Shamgar. Jesus is the greater and truer Othniel, not because he represents the tribe of Judah, because he really is the Lion of Judah. And guess what? He too comes from a foreign land, not from earth, but from heaven. And it shows us that salvation could never come from earth alone because it doesn't matter how hard we try, we will never, ever, ever be able to save ourselves. We're that corrupted with sin. We need a foreign savior and Jesus is that foreign savior. He's also the greater and truer Ehud, isn't he? Who provides a sort of funny or foolish salvation that is often laughed at by the world, but is rejoiced at by Christians. Nobody would have guessed that God would come to his people and be born in a manger. And certainly nobody would have expected to see him on a cross. That's why the Apostle Paul says that Jesus and the message about Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews because it means that you can't earn your way to salvation. You need God to become a child for you. And it's foolishness to the Greeks because Greeks could never imagine the king of kings on a cross. Yet that's where we see him. And it's foolishness to the world because he didn't just stay dead, he resurrected. And people laugh at us for that. But it's in that very funny thing that we actually can find true life, isn't it? So he provides, he's the greater and truer Ehud. And he's also the greater and truer Shamgar, who is this man of mystery. In the book of John, after Jesus heals a blind man, people are freaking out and a riot is about to happen because they say, we don't know where this man comes from. He's a man of mystery. And yet, what does he do? Single handedly defeats our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Single handedly. He's the greater and truer Shamgar. And what we need to see, if you're going to be one of God's people, is that God does provide salvation in a way we would not write the script. It's an of strange salvation. The moralist tends to think that if God were to show up, he would show up like a life coach and give you a book of instructions and say, this is how you need to live. And if you live according to this way, then God will accept you into heaven. On the other hand, the relativist tends to think that if God were to show up, he would show up as a fan and give you applause and say, you know what? You do you. I'm going to celebrate you. You live however you want. But when God shows up, he does neither. When God shows up, he says, you could never save yourselves. This is how bad you are. I came to die. But this is how well loved you are. I came to die. Because greater love has no one than this, than a friend who would lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus comes and he shows us these two things. And in each one of these stories, what you're also supposed to recognize is after the great Salvation comes, like you can see in verse 7, it says this, Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. They have this time of peace, and then he dies, and they go back into rebellion. That's not a throwaway phrase. You should read this and say, we need a king, we need a leader who will not be bound by death. Because when our good saviors come and they help us and then they die, we just go back into our old ways. But what do we have in Christ church? We have a savior, a leader, a king who accomplished victory for us, who died but lives again. He's alive. And because he's alive, we don't have to worry about going back into the slavery of sin because he has saved our souls and he lives and he's our reigning, living king. Unlike these gods, Baal and Asherah, who were just wood and stone, Jesus is a living God. And he's alive. He's alive. And so we have no need to turn our back on him. I like how the great rapper, Shylin says it. He says, Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Hailey Sarasi are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. And him being alive, it calls us to attention that there is no salvation apart from Jesus. We think sometimes that running to these other things, relationships, philosophies, careers, sex, power, money, fame, they will provide us what our soul wants, but they won't. We think that by buying a house in suburbia and Wingfield Springs so that we can have a comfortable life will give us what our heart wants, but it won't. There's only salvation in the living King Jesus. Rule keeping will not save you. Self-expression will not save you. It will not satisfy your soul. Only Jesus will save you. And so this passage is also a warning to us to not be like Eglon who came face to face with the Savior and didn't recognize him and because of that died. So church, if we come face to face with our Lord, And do not recognize the salvation that God has given us. It too will lead to our death. So let us not be like Eglon. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us your salvation. Only help us to recognize and see our need for it. Help us to, to see how you're ever providing your care and your leadership and your love. Help us to see your obvious hand, your invisible hand, and your, your sovereign hand. And Lord, we pray that we would recognize the Savior that you have provided, Jesus Christ. Let us not think we're too good for him. Let us not think we have no need for him. Whether we've been Christians for decades or we've stumbled here off the street and we don't know you yet at all, let us know we need your Jesus. Let us not be like Eglon who comes face to face with the Savior because he doesn't recognize, dies. Give us life in your son, we pray. Amen.